There were once two kids in church who were, as we are all wont to do, whispering to each other during the Sunday service. I bet you don't know God's name, said little Aaron. Do so, replied Carrie. We say it every day. Nuh-uh, we don't say it every Sunday at all. Obviously, God's name is Andy, just like my cousin. Um, Aaron, your cousin Andy isn't God. I've seen him drink milk straight from the carton, and I'm pretty sure God wouldn't do things like that. Geez, Carrie, I'm not saying my cousin is God, but it's like that song we sang at Nana's church. Andy walks with me, Andy talks with me, Andy tells me I am his own. No way is God's name Andy. That's short for something like Andrew or Andrea. God's name is much more dignified. Oh yeah, you can't possibly know a better name for God than Andy. Aaron, of course I do. It's Harold. Harold, why would it be Harold? That's silly. Of course it's Harold. Every day when we say our prayers, I say, Our Father who art in heaven, Harold be thy name. <laughs> and with that, welcome to week three of the Question Sermon series where Pastor Ilana and I discuss questions you've raised. I know there's only one week of this sermon series left, but if you've got a question we haven't tackled yet, don't worry. We plan to do this again in a few months, so feel free to send us questions when you think of them. Even if we can't sermonize about it, we'd be happy to chat with you. This week, you've probably figured out, we're going to talk about the model prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught, the pater noster, otherwise known as the Lord's Prayer. Where does it come from? Why do we pray it? Why is the Presbyterian way to say debts and debtors, but our Methodist cousins say trespasses or those who sinned against us? And why do Catholic visitors stop before the last line? Or probably more likely in this crowd, why do we Protestants out ourselves as Protestants <laughs> at Catholic weddings when we keep going? Well, let's start with the origins of this prayer. There are two versions of the prayer in Scripture, the Lucan and the Matthian. That means in the book of Luke or the book of Matthew, but fancy words. <laughs> Most of our liturgical variants, which is to say those that we use in worship, come from the version in Matthew 6, which is a little bit longer than the version in Luke. Matthew also makes the prayer corporate, saying our Father rather than just Father. Maybe you noticed that difference this morning when they were read. In other words, Matthew's version reminds us that God is more than just Jesus' father and more than just my father, too. Also, in Luke, the disciples ask Jesus for an example prayer while they're alone with Jesus. In Matthew, Jesus offers it as part of a larger public sermon, uh, to be specific, the Sermon on the Mount, the big one, the best of Jesus sermon that's in Matthew. There's one other major difference, but we'll get to that when it becomes relevant. The prayer begins, Our Father who art in heaven. What is Jesus teaching us with this beginning? First, God is our Father, but God is also our Father in heaven. What does this mean for us? It means that we're something of free-range kids. 
never out of God's watchful eye, equal with each other, but not with God. God lets us stumble, get hurt, and learn from each other while pouring out love for us and keeping us ultimately safe. Now, a note here. You may have heard some people say that Jesus' use of Father for God is unusual. Some even say unique. I hate to say it, but this is just poor scholarship. Many, many, many prayers of the first centuries BCE and CE address God as Father, including even pagan prayers directed to the Roman emperor. Indeed, Jesus may be using familiar prayer language to make a point that our prayers ought to be directed to our Father in heaven rather than anyone on earth who claims that title of our Father, like our Father the Emperor, which was a real thing that people said, our Father Caesar. Now, the next line of the prayer, hallowed be thy name. In contemporary English, this would be, may your name be kept holy. Okay, so you might say, fair enough. Keep holy the name of God. Great, let's move on. Aha, but you're missing an interesting piece. Most of us hear this line and think it means don't swear in God's name. It does mean that, but it means something more than that too. A person's name meant much more in the ancient world than just what to call out in the vocative case when you see them on the street. Oh, Ilana, it's good to see you. No, a name was thought to contain the essence of your being, the character, the personality of the person whose name it was. We see this throughout the Hebrew Bible when prophets change their name or give their children prophetic names to show the character of them and of Israel as a whole. So when we pray this line of the prayer, we are asking God to help us keep God's nature and character, God's very essence, holy and revered. It's much more than just don't swear in God's name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we're getting to the very heart of the prayer. We are asking God to bring heaven to earth to establish the kingdom of heaven in the here and now. Once again, Jesus is getting a bit political. He's saying to pray for God's kingdom, not Caesar's kingdom. It's phrased in the poetry of the Hebrew Bible where one line complements and expands on the other. So thy kingdom come is equivalent to thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Can you imagine how amazing this would be to have God's will done? After all, God's will is for us to love each other, to live truly as God's beloved family in the world. It gives me chills just thinking about this. Give us this day our daily bread. How often do we say this phrase and not stop to think about what it means? First of all, isn't it redundant Give us today our bread for today. Seems like we've got one too many todays running through this line. But there's a big debate over the exact meaning of the Greek word that's usually translated daily. It doesn't appear in any other texts of the day. And in fact, an early theologian named Origen wrote that it appeared that the gospel writers themselves had invented this word, had coined this word. 
Jewish New Testament scholar A.J. Levin describes the phrase this way. Its definitions range from necessary for existence to for the current day to for the following day to becoming. Perhaps the best translation then would be give us tomorrow's bread today. For that makes the most sense in a first century Jewish setting. Jewish texts speak of the olam haba, the world to come, as a glorious banquet. Give us tomorrow's bread today, therefore, means bring about your rule when we can eat at the messianic banquet. This is the prophetic hope, the prophetic vision. As it happens, I like her hope, her vision of tomorrow's bread today, continuing the thought of the previous lines of the prayer. Your kingdom come, give us the kingdom, give us the bread of tomorrow today. But that's certainly not the only way to read this line. Another possibility lies in the historical reality of Rome, something called the bread ration in modern English. In Jesus' day, every free person in the city of Rome was eligible for a daily ration of bread, whether they were the wealthiest patrician or the lowest plebeian. This was ridiculously expensive, but had been established by the Senate at behest of several tribunes who argued that the laws that the Senate passed that favored patricians and equites, that's the top two classes of Roman society, had caused free laborers to lose their farms and move to the city looking for work. Therefore, the city owed them the basic ability to live. A few hundred years later, after Constantine's institution of the state church, it became the job of the church to supply this bread ration to the people in Rome. And indeed, they took this beyond Rome itself to anywhere the church was, asking God to provide daily bread, not just in Rome, but for everyone who calls on God's name. And this was the way that they interpreted, give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Here we come to an interesting quirk of translation and history rolled into one. First, though, I'm going to take a little moment to digress. Do you know why we pray this particular prayer using archaic English? This these and thous, the Shakespearean language that we don't use in everyday life unless we're English majors and perhaps PhD students? You certainly know that Jesus didn't speak English. Hopefully, you're aware of this. Jesus did not speak English, much less archaic English. So why is there so much agreement across the English-speaking world about how this prayer is translated? If you think about it, very little else is the same from one denomination to another in the English-speaking world. So why is this one so close to being unison? It's weird that we can pray this prayer in sync with other people at all. And you're absolutely right if you think it's weird. It can be traced back, though, to the beginnings of Protestant faith in England. In 1549, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Church of England, issued the Book of Common Prayer, which included instructions for priests throughout England in how to conduct a service in English. 
as well as prayers and liturgies for many occasions. Prior to this, all services in the Catholic England had been in Latin. So this was new, having a service in English. Everyone in the Anglican Church was supposed to use the same translation, which was based on William Tyndale's 1526 translation of the Bible. After the release of the 1611 authorized version of the Bible, what we call the King James Version today, the Book of Common Prayer was updated to add this new translation. Add, beside. So you had options, choices. Now, most of the Lord's Prayer was exactly the same between Tyndale and King James. But where Tyndale had translated, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, the King James Version had, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Many in the Anglican Church preferred their already traditional reading 50, 75 years later, while the Scottish Presbyterians preferred their newer translation of the authorized version. And so in the Presbyterian Book of Common Prayer in Scotland, the King James Version was used. Now, there's a lot of other history that goes on here that I'm skipping over. Be grateful I could have preached on this for hours. At the center of the matter is that the Greek in Matthew is best translated debts and debtors. Ophilema. It means a failure to pay that which is due. And it is different from the Greek that is sins or trespasses, as Tyndale thought of it. And Luke actually uses this different Greek word for sins. In Luke, um, he uses both ophelema and hamartia, the more traditional word that usually gets translated as sin. So actually, in the Lucan version, in a more literal translation, the Lord's Prayer reads, forgive us our sin as we forgive our debtors. It actually combines both into one. This is where the sin, sinned against us version gets its root, though no denomination, to my knowledge, uses two different words in this portion of the prayer. Trespasses, debts and debtors, sins and sinned against us. That's a lot of differences in a prayer that's otherwise pretty similar. So that's the different wording, but what does it mean? It's a radical statement, asking God to forgive our debt exactly as we forgive the debt that others owe us. Scottish theologian William Barclay puts it like this. Of all the petitions in the Lord's Prayer, this is the most frightening. Jesus says in the plainest possible language that if we forgive others, God will forgive us. But if we refuse to forgive others, God will refuse to forgive us. It's therefore quite clear that if we pray this petition with an unhealed breach, an unsettled quarrel in our lives, we are asking God not to forgive us. Yikes. And on top of that, A.J. Levin reminds us that Jesus uses the word debt deliberately. It goes directly to the pocketbook, she writes. It says, don't hold a debt. If someone needs, you give. The call is for economic justice. Well, we're going to need to forgive debts then, both where we've wronged each other and where we hold a financial motive. I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty tough thing to achieve. And yet, it is important that we try. 
Okay, folks, we're in the home stretch now. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or deliver us from the evil one. It may not seem like it, but this is another poetic parallelism. Don't test us, and especially don't let us face evil. Testing in the Bible is usually incredibly difficult. See Abraham and Isaac, the afflictions of Job, Jesus in the wilderness, and so on. Asking God not to test or tempt us is an admission of weakness. That we fear that if we're tested, we will give in to the evil that's around us. So we're asking God, who strengthens all of us, to keep us from the test. The Greek word that's translated lead us here, lead us not into temptation, literally means place in the middle of. So we're saying, God, please don't place us in the middle of a test. Please don't place us in the middle of evil. Please don't plunk us down into the hands of evil. Instead, we want God to keep us safely in God's midst. And that's where the prayer ends in the Bible. Yet we Protestants have this ending. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. This was added by the early church. So early that one of the first, well, let's say a guidebook to being Christian, that's called the Didache, the teachings of the disciples, this early guidebook includes it. Many monks, familiar with how the prayer was read in church, actually wrote it into their copies of the Bible that they were making. When Tyndale wrote his English translation, he was working from copies that had this line in them. And so Tyndale included it in that original copy. Later scholarship revealed that it wasn't original, and most modern translations don't include it. You'll find if you look in most translations today, there's a little bracketed section for it, or it'll be footnoted. It'll be mentioned, but it'll not be in the main text. Okay, great. The Didache had it in there. Where did it come from that they put it in? Where did it come from for them? It looks like it was based on David's prayer at the dedication of the temple that we read from 1 Chronicles. Specifically the line, yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. That line, taken, shifted, condensed down, became our ending. The Catholic Church, though it once used the same ending phrase as the Protestants keep, actually decided to drop this phrase from public liturgy, which is why they seem to stop early or we get outed as Protestants in Catholic services. So, why? Why do we keep saying the prayer in archaic English using an ancient form that wasn't in the original text? I'd like to say that it has to do with the power of the familiar to bring comfort. Anymore, it's hard to find any piece of liturgy or prayer that's shared across all English-speaking Christians. We aren't restricted to prayers from the Book of Common Prayer, which is a good thing as it frees us to creatively worship God and new expressions. But this prayer is held in common in words that are special, that are memorized across the faith. Henri Nouwen reminds us that when we pray a familiar prayer with great attention, we experience healing. As you pray, you will be constantly distracted by your worries. But if you keep going back to the words of the prayer, 
you will gradually discover that your worries become less obsessive and that you really start to enjoy praying. As the prayer descends from your mind into the center of your being, you will discover its healing power. Now, may God's will be done in you. May Jesus' love be shown in you. And may the Spirit bring you tomorrow's bread today that we may live truly as sisters and brothers in God's kingdom. Amen.